James, we often talk about how generally one of the sections of papers we care the most about are the method sections. When we open up your paper, get a new one, the title makes a fancy claim, one of the first things we do is go to the method sections. But for today, I want to talk about a different section of the paper, which I don't think we've ever spoken about before. The appendix. And this is the appendix, straight to the appendix. No, <laughs> this is the limitations section of a paper. James, how carefully do you read the limitation sections of papers? Um, it's binary. Okay. It, if it's something I'm sufficiently familiar with where, well, frankly, I immediately get the feeling I know more about it than the person who wrote the paper, then- What do you mean? Have you ever read a paper and then you realize that the citations aren't everything they could be and uh, key references have been missed? Um, maybe something not strictly factual has been said. Something has <laughs> been distorted. Do you want to read the limitations of that or do you not give a shit? Yeah, Frankly, that's a good point. I don't give a shit. Um, but, you know, usually the people who are writing about something know more about it than I do. Uh, in which case I'm very interested in the limitations section. Um, and if I'm trying to read the paper properly, I will pay very close attention to it. Uh, this is especially relevant at work now, Daniel, because I have to read things that I know I don't understand as well as I could. And the limitations section, a lot of the time is the only part of a paper that's written in a way that's interrogative. It's, it, it's where things are actually being engaged with. Yeah, things are being assessed. And I like that part very much when someone who's competent and honest is writing it about their own work. So usually, usually I read it quite carefully, but generally I read a paper for uh, either 30 seconds or 20 minutes and very little <laughs> in between, you know? So you're saying if the rest of the paper seems trustworthy, then you also would see the limitations as trustworthy that the author's been quite honest, honest as to the limits. Maybe maybe insightful is better than trustworthy. I feel like a lot of the time in a good paper, it's the, it's the section where you learn the most because it's also one where you're likely to see the most far-flung citations of things you might have seen before. I think it's very common for me to chase down an additional reference about something I didn't know previously from that section than from any other. One of the most interesting limitation sections I saw recently was a paper from Catherine Page Harden. does a lot of fantastic work with genetics. Recently co-wrote a book, The Genetic Lottery, which I highly recommend. And she co-authored a paper... I read it recently, but maybe it was from, from a couple of years ago. And look, genetics, particularly um, population genetics, can be controversial. People often take these papers and, and make wild claims. And what she did in this paper is she was explicit about what does this, what are these results, what, what, what can you not claim from these results? Very mm. explicit about the things that you can't say from these results, almost yeah, in a way pe to people head off. Who are, people who are used to being misunderstood. Um, We'll, we'll often make a beeline for, yeah. you know, just, just, just to presuppose the stupid shit that they see will happen afterwards. I'll I like that. how 
Yeah, I, I like how that's very explicit because often you you say these things in a roundabout way of what you can and cannot say with the results. But at least for this particular paper, and I'm sure that happens quite a bit, um, these co-authors said this is what you, you cannot make these t- these types of conclusions with the results that we have. But look, I want to talk about limitations because there was a great preprint that came out a couple of days ago and it was titled, What Limitations Are Reported in Short Articles in Social and Personality Psychology? This was led by Beth Clark, University of Melbourne, Sarah Schiavone, and Samin Vizier, former, former guest of the show, who's also an author of this paper. And what they did was they sampled 440 articles from one particular journal. This was Social, Psychological, and Personality Science. And they categorized over 800 limitations. And these limitations were then categorized into four broad categories, uh, external validity, construct validity, and internal validity, and statistical conclusion validity. And then they did uh, 12 further subcategories. And they, yeah, this is a, this is a really, <laughs> I'm seeing James's cat has just appeared and blocked the entire screen. This was a very interesting paper. It's not often that I see a meta science paper and I'm like, that is extremely novel and cool. And this was one of those papers where they were, they were basically looking at this going, we can see by looking at limitations and by categorizing them, we can see what areas that people, what, what concerns that occupy a field's attention. So if a particular field is very concerned about sample size, then sample size is likely to be mentioned in limitations. If mm-hmm. they're worried about external validity, then they're more likely to do this. So I thought this was a very handy way of looking at the concerns of a given research field. Of course, this one being social and personality psychology. I quite liked it. Uh, to give a, a basic overview of the results, um, they over 200 articles had an explicit limitation section and uh, there was an average of- Out of how many? F- uh, okay, so they looked at over 400. Um, and 200 had a limitation explicit, section. Oh, explicit limitation sections. And you're going you're to like this, James. Uh, mm. Five papers had a limitation section but didn't actually note any limitations. <laughs> 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 limitations it's all too easy for us and we're worried that people won't appreciate it because it was just so trivial to achieve that's our only limitation it's like oscar wilde turning up at immigration and saying i have nothing to declare except my genius that's fuck, that's, 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 fuck yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> fuck you and quite a bit two, 219 studies um they they didn't have an explicit limitation section yet on average these had 1.18 limitations. And the range of limitations for the ones with explicit limitation sections had uh, from 0 to 7, to zero to seven uh, limitations, and the ones without an explicit limitation section had 0 to 5. Um, looking at the actual breakdown, the highest number of reports when it came to the percentage of articles reporting a subcategory was most had uh, external validity, and then construct validity, internal validity, and statistical uh, conclusion validity. So yeah, this was uh, this was an interesting one, and what they found was that there was a small but significant increase in the number of limitations that were discussed in articles over time. And this was taken over a ten-year period, so there was an increase in, in limitations that were reported, and this seems to be driven uh, by looking at. Um, uh, let's see. 
but the external validity seemed to be the the most commonly um, to, to discuss one. So yeah, this is this is a this is an interesting one. Looking at the to- the types of, of limitations that were reported in these particular papers, does this just does this surprise you? This sort of, this sort this sort of result? No, I don't think it's particularly surprising. Um, uh, there, there certainly is a in our publication first culture. There certainly is a tendency that people have to ignore limitations. That is counterbalanced, of course, by the fact something with obvious limitations. It's one of the things that peer review is allegedly capable of solving for you. I mean, God forbid, for instance, you do a paper in cross-cultural psychology um, and then you don't do anything particularly cross-cultural and you start making broad claims about the nature of humanity after testing 16 white dorks in Michigan. So those are pointed out because they're quite obvious to point out. What I found myself wishing this contained, which is of course impossible and this is not a criticism, is I would love to see limitations before and after peer review. Mm. Because as these go up, it may signal a change in culture that other people are asking for them, or it may signal a change in practice, as in it's becoming more normative to include them. Now, it's not a very large trend that's going up here to be able to include limitations, but I think certainly in our occasionally fraught and very slow which is, I, I imagine the reform in science flopping like a fish a lot of the time when it's trying to get back to the water, you know, left side, right side, boing up in the air, tail wiggles, and eventually it's sort of gradually a little bit at a time makes its way back into the water after it's been hit by a wave. But in general, it's just sort of flopping from side to side like a total goon. Um, as As we do that, I think that one of the one of the flops that has stuck to a certain degree is the obvious note about external validity. Um, and that's driven by a lot of things. It's driven by uh, increasing emphasis on weird problems, um, which we've had previous episode probably plural on at this point. Um, and for, for, I mean, for want of a better term, because that that in itself is not an amazingly uh, granular characterization. You, yeah, you can find out previous criticism of those elsewhere. Um, but there is also a quite a broad concern in the associated social sciences about Whitey just turning up and uh, you know. As I've I've come I've I've come to your tiny funny little country to to get data so I can take it back to the Stanfords and be amazing with it. So you know, chop chop, uh, order us up some data. I I'll, imagine I'll, I'll give you a, I'll acknowledge I've, you in the acknowledgement section. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I imagine a lot of these people, like uh, the, the British imperialists in pith helmets, turning up the pith helmet. You know, to uh, <laughs> to, to, to 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 hunt data. 
um, you know, shoot all the wildlife, take a lithograph and then piss off home on a leaky boat. Um, and I, I think that fits into a broader environment of uh, an understanding being achieved that especially when you're studying the sort of core nature of humanity that um, you're not you're not doing it in a, a way that has a particularly large amount of external validity and so much of this hinges on language and culture and the collective understandings that are so normal to people within them they think it's simply the only way of thinking so I'm not surprised that that gets uh, some kind of primacy here. I'm also not surprised that the numbers in general are like, they're low. Some of these categories, 20, 30% of people have an acknowledged limitation. And it always pissed me off. It was my favorite section to write because it, a, a lot of the time it felt like, and I had plenty of like back in, back in the point where I had to write with other people. Uh, and they had the ability to edit what I was doing and make decisions about it that I couldn't readily fight. Um, I, I had the tendency to be incredibly critical of my own work. And I really enjoyed finding and pointing out and interrogate. I probably should have guessed that like the work I was going to do was going to come at this point. But this is well before that. I, I loved the process of being able to interrogate it and what we could and couldn't know from it because it was also helping you design what was coming next. It was the only part that felt interactive. Um, and I was- think that co-authors kind of pulled you back on the stuff that you were saying? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, it's like, well, it's just, if you've bashed your own stuff this hard, it'll never get published. And I go, oh, this is well, my weekend. Maybe we could trust editors to be adults. See, that was my naivete as a, as a young-ish, man-ish. <laughs> um, I mean, they have a point when it comes to- you know, if you write it like this, you may undermine confidence in what you're saying. But they can also get fucked from the perspective of <laughs> there is there is an honest way to interrogate what you're doing. And nothing of what I was saying was wrong. It was merely a full exposition of what something meant in context. Very rarely, very rarely do you get the opportunity to put something in a really mature, aggressive context. And when you get to the point where you're telling other people what to think about what you've written, it, 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 in, some, in some ways, it's the only section where you could really flex, you know? So, I, I, love a, I love a good limitation section. I wish you liked them better. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not often surprised by limitation sections. I don't know whether this is something with my own field, but often when you're reading a paper, you can you can list off the limitations as you're reading it. And then when you get to that section, you're like, okay, at least they acknowledge these things. But very rarely do I come to these sections and I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. That is a really good point. It doesn't really happen that often. I also wonder, I have a feeling that at least within our fields of psychophysiology, I think there are more limitations. On average, I, I just, from reading papers, the ones that actually- Yeah, and them, more authors who don't know what they are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there, there's a mix. I, I, feel, I feel like uh, physiology and the social sciences has, has slipped backwards over the last couple of years. Um, I okay. Think it's, I think it's dead ending a little. Um, As in popularity or just the quality or- both okay it's the it's the impression that i get um i 
I think it's uh, I think it's quite moribund in a lot of respects now. I mean, I wasn't mad on it to start with, which is why after I finished my PhD, I, you know, the only social science I've published after that was in social science journals, kicking the shit out of social science. <laughs> um, is that because people are finally realizing the limitations of? Using these tools within social psychology? No, it's, just- it's because it's because it isn't just because trends change over time, um, and because there isn't anything new. There isn't there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of development. There aren't new interesting analytical methods because there's no one working at the the nexus between the social scientific questions that they're interested in and the actual physiology and engineering that gets you the new equipment and the new methods and the new insights necessary to be able to generate something that's truly novel. There's, there's very little that fits into that category. And that's really the only thing at this point that I'd be interested in. Um, I mean, the, the world just doesn't need another fucking ERP study, <laughs> you know, or another bunch of drivel about heart rate or skin conductance or any number of other things. I, I think, you know, it was, it was, a little bit sort of passe when it was something that I cared about and I feel like it slipped even further. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of those papers don't contain limitations because, you know, you've got psychophysiologists who can't physiology, can't program, <laughs> can't engineer. They've got no DSP capacity worth a fuck. Um, they haven't read the papers that are that describe where these techniques are from. They don't know their limitations. That would that would require background. It's supposed to be very hard to work in a field that is the nexus of two other fields. You have to have a very deep understanding of both to be able to make the crossover work. Or collaborate with people that know. Yeah. Well, th- then you have to have the ability to ask them and then convince them to say yes, Dan, or you have to be in a very specific circumstance where people can be rolled in to do that. But a lot of a lot of it is reasonably pointless. And so, no, people don't list their limitations because half of these people can't tie their fucking shoes. That's my candid opinion. One of the things that surprised me with this paper was- I wish I could <laughs> smile in an audio version. I mean, deliberately unpleasant here, but most, most of that's- Fairish, accurate, Fair-ish. accurate, uh, accurate-ish. One of the results. You know, that Dan's me not a bit. complaining about it. He's just going, "Oh, well, that's horribly offensive, James." But you're right. I'm just going to agree with you quietly and talk about something else because I still work <laughs> with these people and you don't. Ha ha ha. No, I, I do. I do think you're you're largely correct. <laughs> there hasn't been, look within psychophysiology. There are very few papers that I've read recently that I'm like, that is really really cool. The one that comes to mind is where it was a heartbeat discrimination task where they presented two different videos and a little heartbeat and people were actually able to guess based on a video on whose heart the person, like it was just people were just, it was a, a, a video of a face and they were able to discriminate above chance who the heart belonged to or who the heart rate belonged to. That's cool stuff. That's inventive. I like that. It was uh, Galvez Pohl, I believe, is the first author. Mm. Have you seen this one, James? No, this one passed me by. Um, did I hope they controlled for um, skin well, color and well, perception? It, and yeah, yeah. It, it it feels like something that would have to be very carefully controlled. Any, it, I mean, because people have magic predictive powers in any context is historically not done amazingly as a research area. Um, so. I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, there is obviously 
a vascular component to a face. It does have blood shooting through it. That blood mm. is visible via light in the visible spectrum. Mm. So it's not some way out idea. Um, but you know, I imagine that the the, the displayed emotion, um, the color of the skin, the size of the person, the sex of the person, they have some they reason. All that they stuff. have some, yeah, that's some, yeah, you control for it, of course, but there's some reasonable correlates that, um, you know, what controlling things in a big grab bag, messy regression shitbox scenario is occasionally no, they did, worth. Yeah, but, but they did stuff like um, they masked sections of faces uh, to see what part of the faces gave the important information. This was like one of those like five experiment studies where they were just ticking off things that could explain it. Mm. And it was really cool. I'm surprised you didn't see this one. Like I'll an old to, perception I'll... study. Yeah, yeah really right. cool well, stuff. Maybe maybe all the nice people listening to this podcast who haven't um, immediately quit after discovering Dan's middle life intransigence will, um, <laughs> will be able to tell us what they think of it. Um, because that is interesting. I mean, that has obvious implications for emotional perception. You ever look mm-hmm. at someone and realize their heart's beating really fast, but they're keeping it cool on the outside. That's a mm-hmm. fascinating piece of social information. Yeah. You can get internal states just by looking at someone. These yeah. are just lay people. These aren't like, you know, cops or interrogators, whether they're good at this kind of stuff or not. But uh, these were just students that were able to discriminate. It was really cool. This was impressive stuff. One of the things that surprised me the most about this preprint was that I thought, and I think they also hypothesized that one of the most commonly reported limitations will be sample size, but this was not one of the most commonly reported limitations. So I, I guess there are two possible uh, reasons for this. What about one? What about power, Dan, the, the big brother of sample size? Also not reported that often. So oh, either- God, Really? Yeah, either- Power was good for these studies, or sample size was appropriate, and it wasn't a limitation to begin with, or this was just ignored. Uh, I think (laughs) one analysis that you could do in principle, um, here's a project for a a master's student or PhD student, is you can actually go back and you can go back and look at these papers and and calculate what sort of effect sizes that these studies or these study designs could reliably detect. And then you could actually see was there actually a power issue or a sample size issue and did they not report it or um, was um, was there an improvement? I think this was from 2010, 2020. Um, you know, the reform movement probably really kicked in, you know, 13, 14, 15. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know if whether there was actually a change there. I, I, I don't think sample size and power has has magically improved but maybe with like mturk and if you're doing you know social psych stuff that could be presented as a questionnaire then, then you can actually have stuff that's perfectly powered but this is a this is a research question that can be addressed but it wasn't actually a commonly reported limitation in in my field in psych and neuroendocrinology this is very very common Re- the resource constraints which actually limit how many people you can you can potentially test and sample size is almost always mentioned as, as, as a limitation which um which which is a good thing 
So this is why it surprised me because at least in my subfield, this is very, very common. But in these, in this subfield of social psychology and personality, it, it wasn't, or at least within this journal. <laughs> but the funny thing was, um, Samin, who is a co-author in this paper, also was an associate editor and chief editor during the period, <laughs> during the period of, of, of the papers that were, that were evaluated. So maybe it was Samin going, you know, emphasizing the editors going, you know, sample size is, is an issue or poten- potential critiques there. Um, and, and Samin could be influencing that. But they do, the authors actually do mention this as a potential limitation of their limitation paper. Mm, a meta limitation. A meta limitation. We've, we've, reached, we've reached that level. Well, it's, it's cute. Um, I wonder, I wonder if that's the case. It would be really interesting to see the reviewer remarks on anything that had no limitations was simultaneously underpowered. You know, because obviously, look, I mean, the vast majority of the sort of canned remarks that you get when someone else reviews your work, so they feel like they're doing their little jobs, is to point out caveats. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if the paper is going to exist in the first place, I mean, obviously it's rejected. We'd never be reading about it in a meta-scientific paper about what happened to it after it got published, or at least it's going to be published. It's going to be published elsewhere. So, realistically, the strong majority of these papers were caveated at some point. And that's one of the appropriate and useful functions of peer review. Not to say, hey, lie to me, Eddie. Lie to me and replan your analysis from scratch and say you meant it the whole time. It's not a reviewer helping you out to hark those results up a bit. It's not them saying you've missed some key reference. This is mischaracterized. It's not them asking you to clarify something, which is probably the most common peer review remark. What does that mean? You know, everyone gets a bit of that. You get in your own head, you start using the language you're familiar with. But probably the second most common is caveats to include. So what happens when, how many, how many, what percentage of papers have listed no limitations whatsoever? (laughs) Uh, Quite a number. So, of course, there was the five papers with the limitation section, which had no limitations. And then there was, um, did it just say limitations none, like it was Superman? <laughs> I would love that. I don't know, but they, they got around it because for some reason they had a limitation section and some of them ended up talking about future directions, but without actually mentioning limitations. That was weird. So obviously for this journal, it, is, it wasn't a requirement to have a limitation section. I think very few journals <laughs> actually have this as a, as a requirement. I have nothing to declare except nothing my lack declare. of limitations. No limitations. <laughs> I... Was kind of I was never taught how to write a paper, but it just becomes ingrained that you always mention limitations. So it's kind of odd when papers well, don't it does have to, this. It does to you, Dan. I mean, we just we've just been making fun of uh, making fun of uh, social and personality psychology for making assumptions about big groups of people. Now you're making assumptions about everyone else based on the education that you had. I think in other contexts, it's very uncommon to teach people to list all the things that might not get their publication. 
Yeah, yes, there are people that stupid and venal and unpleasant in the world. I mean, in the pantheon of great sins, it feels like a very small one. So, of course, there's a lot of people who don't want to talk about what's wrong with their work. And if they want to talk about it, they'll go, oh, that's the reviewer's job to point out all the problems. I want to point out all the good <laughs> stuff. Like it's an adversarial process and not a collaboration. And, you know, there's plenty of, this is stop, stop making assumptions that, other people have, I mean, I know I make fun of your face a lot, but obviously the whole reason that we're here and that we haven't killed each other over the last period of time is you're very much on the side of the sort of inherent honesty of what you're trying to do and you hope mm. that it stands on its own merits and you would take a great deal of pride in something that you think you've done well being recognized by other people, which seems like a normal thing to do. But please bear in mind that there's a very strong minority of people who do this, who'd never say the sentence that you just said. Jesus, there's people, there's paper mills, there's people who don't even write their own papers. <laughs> did, did you, oh, sorry, I know this is an aside, but did you see the thing recently, the retractions that came from the paper mill? After the uh, retraction watch investigation. happens all the time. Which one are you talking no, about? No. I, well, that is actually a very good point. Let me clarify. <laughs> um, what was extraordinary about this one? This was extraordinary because the people who did this is an investigation that happened maybe six months ago. They found a, 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 a paper mill market and they just recorded the titles and the details of what was on the what? paper mill market. Um, because someone, either they let them in, they admitted them access, or this was public. It was just out there somewhere, you know, maybe on a fucking tour site or something. I have no idea. And they just recorded all of the things that were available for sale and then, them all. and then chased them down in the journals later on. I mean, this is, there's no better way to thug a paper up than I have clear irrefutable proof that somebody bought it. Gee. <laughs> And did the publishers actually fall through with retractions? Yes, they did. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, I mean, this is you would you would hope so. I mean, that's reasonably unambiguous. They can't <laughs> they can't they can't all be as useless as some of the life sciences journals who, you know, issue a correction. Is this is some correction. Some, no, yeah, this there is are doubts correct. around the veracity of this paper. <laughs> yeah. So so the author has included the line drawing of a cat. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so much of that. Appendix. This is Mr. Meowser Trousers. Good. It's okay to publish. I mean, I, I, I'm being flippant, but there was, there was a couple of cases recently with these huge, wonderful biological figures. I don't know what was on them, all to organelles, cells, shit like that. And there were maybe dozens of individual duplications. It's like it was, it was proper, a proper con job, you know? And, and, and they issued a correction for this. Correction. Uh, it's yeah. This is it's just you. We we have to stop pretending that um, this is a serious business when things like that happen. I always I'm really worried about how much we're missing because people are actually good at this. Every everyone who everyone who does this work also worries about that, Dan, because all you have to do. To, to give something a little bit of what we call the, the old the old one sink one two yeah <laughs> to, 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 to gin it up a bit obviously you do obviously you do the um the, the work properly you spend the money on hiring the staff and buying the equipment and 
running the experiments and aggregating the data. And then you get to the end and all it really needs is a couple of subtle redactions a lot of the time. If you've got the entire th- the, the, the entire analytical pathway resolved, all you really need to do to fabricate, uh, well, actually, sorry, falsify. All you really need to do to falsify something is, is very subtle a lot of the time. You know, you, well, maybe you don't even need to falsify at all. You just you just need to uh, a couple of um a couple of reasonable exclusions of some subgroups that just muddy the water, and you you know, and you you can even say in the paper this was recorded in a larger sample of data mm-hmm. that had other stuff in it. Um, yeah. Do you think anyone will ever list that as a limitation? <laughs> 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 we're only re- we're only reporting the 120 people split into three groups where it worked. Uh, there's a few other hundred people over there who aren't represented at all because we thought their answers were bad and we didn't like them. That's why, as an aside to the aside, that's why I like um, this. There's this thing called uh, from Rand Wilcox uh, robust analysis, where what it essentially does is it chops off the ends of both sides of the sample. To figure out how robust are these results, it really asks the question: uh, What is the effect of, of of outliers? So, if people are making, sometimes I'm reviewing a paper, and if people are making crazy claims, and I can, I, I look at the data, going, "Hang on a minute, this is basically depending on three people." Mm. I will ask them to, "Can you rerun this with robust statistics to actually see how robust your results are?" And if things if things depend on on two or three people. Um, and th- this is one potential way of heading off that. Oh, let's just shape up a couple of people here, adjust our exclusion inclusion well, criteria. There's, there's there's many many things that are in that bucket, you know, and they're perfectly reasonable things that are listed as I've seen I've seen these listed as limitations themselves. So I've seen papers that say there are two really weird people here. We took away the genuinely weird one and we ran mm. it, and then we took away the other mostly weird one. And then we ran it again because we noticed that their values were absolutely troppo. Um, obviously, there's formal ways of looking at what is and isn't an outlier. Um, Levine's test, I think, does that. So does Grubb's test. Yeah. And a few different approaches. Yeah, and of course, there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of non-parametric methods, um, categorical methods, etc where yeah. the influence of an outlier is dramatically reduced yeah. because all it's doing is uh, providing, uh, you know, on case of categorical data, an extra category in one direction. Um, so, you know, this is, I mean, ro- robust, robust testing is interesting, I think, in especially when you, you're talking about uh, what's, what's, what's normative to uh, a, a hypothetical person who's doing this. Oh, like when when can we expect of of where do we expect the error to come from? Mm. And if the answer to that is it's a person and they're inherently weird or unusual, as opposed to any number of other things like measurement error, then uh, it's a good approach. It's also something people can understand very readily, you know, because it's it's written down. You can go go look at that, do it that way, then we'll see. I just realized there is a way that you could assess how limitations change from submission to publication. You just compare the preprint. That is a very selective sample, obviously. Right. But you can look at you can look at the preprint 
what did they list as limitations? I would guess that from preprint to publication, limitations on average would always increase because a reviewer is going to go, have you considered this? And the author's going to be like, oh, well, I may as well include this as, as a limitation. I don't really <laughs> see them. I don't, I don't see them shrinking. Like, I don't see an author going, you, you have listed too many limitations. Please no. remove some lim- limitations. I don't know. Maybe it happens. <laughs> but you, you can do this. You could compare, assuming a, the preprint is the version. That's another good listener question. Um, have you have you ever have you ever had to remove a limitation during review where someone doesn't agree with you that your your caveat to your own work is appropriate? I have never I have never heard of that happening. The funniest request I've got, which is kind of related to that, is reviewer asked me, "Have you considered including this hypothesis to to better fit with your results?" For <laughs> suggesting, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, let me just grab my time machine, go back pre-register this how do i respond to that i basically said i you know without any yeah i don't know I, I i didn't do that um but that's probably the strangest request i've gotten for including something which is just so wild um <laughs> but yeah any listener have you um been asked to remove, <laughs> remove i guess caveat. the i guess the one potential area is this thing is so obvious it is probably not worth mentioning and you are under a tight word count and you oh, should expand in a different area. Yeah, and obviously, look, and this is one thing that was very definitely covered in the preprint. And so it basically, if you're forced to make a decision, if you have to cut something, mm. if you have a hard 5,000-word limit. I mean, I've, I've written papers before where um, let's say it was a 2,000-word limit and it came at 2012 or something and the thing would come back, it would be cut 12 words. Oh, they actually police it. Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've had I've had that happen. Um, I usually try and sneak that past. Tr- tremendous tremendous linguistic tricks were employed to get that shit down to one thousand nine hundred ninety six or something. Hyphens, <laughs> oh no! Just just take out all the definite articles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Og do thing. <laughs> thing good. Uh, <laughs> Congrats to Beth and Sarah and, and Samin. Uh, very, very interesting preprint. A nice example as well of a good uh, tweet thread explaining what they found. It was. It was, wasn't it? And I, I think something like this is always worthwhile when it is a box that's essentially unopened, if you catch my drift. Because no. there's, there's, well, there's, there's not a lot of – not a lot of analysis of. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen an analysis of this. Yeah, it's great. Previously, cool. is the fact that it's it's a it's a genuinely new idea, um, and in in that sense, I think it's um, it's really quite intriguing. I mean, even just us spitballing about it and coming up with silly ideas, we've 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 found other things that might be interesting to look into, and I think that's the hallmark of a of a, a really good new idea mm. is when it immediately suggests, like your brain immediately goes, I'm interested in the answer to the subsequent questions. Mm. Um, so I agree with you. I'm, I'm glad you sent it to me. I wish I had uh, more more time to, to read it in sufficient detail. Um, and I must say, I think I've been very moderate in not making fun of SPPS um, it's the cat. It's it, the cat uh, summoning journal. Psst, psst, psst. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, did I say anything rude? What did I say much that was rude about psychologists? No, no, not really. No. Not at all. Not at all. Because I mean, there's at least three good ones out here. We have a, you know, a limitation to buy criticism. We have, we have at least three good ones out there now. Um, this is also yeah. like this is a lot of work. People really fail yeah. to appreciate sometimes. I, I found I found I found they this put together a shiny app for data for for importing data. I think Sarah did that. I love mm. it. But people Next people do not b- because because something already exists. Um, there is still, and I have encountered this quite a lot, and and still now this year, the criticism exists that um, if you're going to do meta research of any format, that it's inherently easy because the data already exists. You know, because you don't have to go out and have a new idea. I mean, this is the, the, these were fatuous criticisms when they were popular to say about research parasites ten years ago, and they're still fatuous criticisms now. Because I mean, you still need to have a hypothesis. One element of this is shorter, but in general, what you end up doing is, I mean, I remember just how impossibly unpleasant this was in the Grimm paper, and Nick did so much more work on that than me. I was mentioned as an example. Reading. Yeah, I know, but no one's going to list that as a limitation of their own section. <laughs> like we, we failed even, the Grimm test. <laughs> even though we have the data, we reanalyzed the summary data and found out that we're wrong. Now, that will never happen. Um, although it's nice to be cited, I did see that. Um, but, I mean, this is, this is a lot of work. This is there's many many hundreds of papers that have to be read and coded and understood mm. to be able to do this, um, and I mean part of me I said shit I know I'm getting fucking old because I look at this and think oh god I could never do that it's so much stuff <laughs> I never have the uh, and not even I wouldn't have the time it's like I know I like get thirty papers in and then just want to jump off the nearest cliff it's just I I appreciate the the energy. We used to wonder at conferences and at people in their 40s and 50s and say, I love the energy that people bring into the room because you get to the point where you just can't be fucked with a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's hard work. I yeah, think it's- uh, it is. It's been done in a few fields already. Uh, I think management and some, some some other fields. So, what will be interesting is I hope this inspires people to do this for their own fields and see what sort of comparisons, what kind of limitations do different fields report? My hunch would be in psychoneuroendocrinology that sample size would be one of the most common things. Um, mm. I could be wrong, but that is that is an interesting research question. But it's more about the larger question is what does this say about the things that the field cares about or more accurately what we think the field or what we think the reviewers are, are, are going to think about. And it just it's a tough tension between how much stuff do we include that's super obvious and how much stuff do we include because we think the reviewer is going to say it? Mm. How can we, well, how can we? I, th- I really wish that there's like, you can't include it because it's obvious. Now, if working with people who are non-scientists in a corporate job of Malone, Daniel has taught me anything. It's that the moment you take out that information, then someone who is either insufficiently experienced or in a rush or doesn't have the full context will fail to know that it's there. Now, obviously, there's a degree to where it's really fatuous, yes, but the whole idea of everyone understands that 
Everyone does not understand mm. that. Figure out a way to put it in and only use 12 words. Really? Yeah. Really? Supplementary limitations. <laughs> Supplementary limitations. Limitations to the supplemental limitations. Yeah. Word counts. Oh, I, th- I think I think word counts is, is a whole episode on its own. But oh, word counts. That is- sounds like a really boring episode. Possibly. Let, let Dan know by mailing <laughs> yes. him shit in a do box. You, do you not want us to hear about if word he, counts? If he no, not- I- <laughs> <laughs> I've submitted to more and more journals which don't have word counts, and I, I find that quite refreshing because it means that you can take the time that you need to say what you need to say, and hopefully the reviewers and the editors are saying, this is long-winded, remove this. I'm not afraid to tell authors of papers that I'm reviewing that this part is long-winded because it completely detracts from the central message of the paper. I will say those things. Yeah. I won't tell them they have to remove it, but I'm saying very strongly consider removing this because I got lost and I was a little bit bored. Ah, oh, these 5,000-word introductions, James. Terrible. Yeah. Hate them. Why? Why? Because Get they, to the point. Because they want you to know. thousand words. They want you to know that they know. Yeah. That's you just why. have to cite a few of the relevant papers in the introduction. No, thousand words. No, no, you have to you have to struggle through their display of knowledge, Daniel. It's terrible. Because if you if you haven't done that, Boy. how else will you know that they know? I mean, they okay. may have even read some of them. <laughs> maybe, or maybe they've read the abstract. Ooh, if we're lucky, cheeky reading Go a whole be- reading a whole abstract. That's just sounds like work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oh, no, oh, no. It's good, to have you, it's good to have you back. Everyone doesn't know. Dan's been super duper busy, even by Dan's standards. Nah. And he's been just sitting around and he finishes the day about half two in the morning and he sits down, has a non-alcoholic beer and a little cry, and then he gets up at <laughs> half four and does it all again. Does it all again. So gets up again. The reason I'm we're back, delayed, baby. We're, the reason we're delayed it for once, for once, is not actually <laughs> me. <laughs> it's, 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 all, it's, it's all my fault that we are- I am back, and uh, we're, we're going to get um, a few. We're, we're throwing around the idea of doing some some live episodes potentially. Yeah, some, we're some, we're we also we also have a plan to uh, mitigate a uh, potential um, uh, potential disruptions to the schedule in future. Um, this is this is just a blip, but we've we we have it in hand. Yeah, um, it's a uh, it's it's just life. I'm afraid. Yeah. We've been very good with our schedule over the years, and now all of a sudden we're not. And for once, it isn't my fault. It's all it's all my fault. I take responsibility. Uh, <laughs> I'm just so well, happy yeah. that it's not mine. I forget. I forgot to rib you about it entirely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Everything Hurts. We'll be back again soon on schedule with a new episode. <laughs> See you later, everyone. <laughs> later. <laughs>